0: Hey everyone, thanks for listening. This is the discussion with scholars and authors Nate Moore and Calder Walton about the intelligence war and partisan warfare in Ukraine. Along with current events, we get into Ukraine's long history of partisan warfare and the history of Ukraine's intelligence service in the post-Soviet period. Both Moore and Walton are part of Harvard University's Belfer Center, Nate is an associate with the Center's Applied History Project, and Calder is an assistant director with the Applied History Project and the Intelligence Project. Calder is also the author of Spies, the epic intelligence war between East and West, and Nate is the author of Number One Realist, Bernard Fall, and Vietnamese Revolutionary Warfare. I'll have links to where you can buy their books on the Substack at www.nopark.substack.com. Thanks again for listening, and if you like this work, please subscribe to the Substack and consider a paid subscription. It'll help me produce more work and will support a reporting trip to Ukraine this fall. So, each of you sort of has an interesting angle um, on what's been happening uh, in Ukraine and partisan warfare and intelligence. So... Nay, I wanted to kind of start with you. Uh, when we got in contact, you were interested to in talk about how partisan warfare in Ukraine relates to uh, Bernard Fall's experience uh, in World War II and sort of the phases of partisan warfare. Um, Ukraine has its own history of partisan warfare. So could you explain how what's happening uh, in Ukraine now kind of fits into that context?
1: Yeah, I think... Um... If we talk about the World War II piece, it's important just to set the context with this and that it's really critical to understand that there was really kind of three main phases in World War II that related to partisan warfare. And this really could be from the invasion in September 1939 up to when Operation Barbarossa began. And this is where, of course, Germany was really ascendant. completely crushing all of Europe for the most part. But then once we get from basically June 1941 to Stalingrad in um, January 1943, we have a major turning point with German defeat with the sixth, circle, sixth, sixth Army being encircled in Stalingrad. At that point, you really see Europeans recognize that Germany has vulnerabilities. And this is really when you see partisan warfare kind of reach and begin to ascend in more activity, pitched battles against uh, um, German forces by partisan groups and so on and so forth. And then it's really from the January 1943 to the liberation in Europe through 1944 and 1945, where you have Churchill's mandate about setting Europe ablaze through the SOE, the OSS coming in and parachuting troops in. And so partisan warfare really hinges on the population believing that that powerful adversary can be defeated In the case of Ukraine, right now, we do have more of a conventional mindset in that we have Ukrainians versus the Russian Federation. And so the lines are much more clear, for example, than what we had in Yugoslavia, um, which we've talked about a little bit before, where you had so many different ethnicities, different partisan groups infighting, um, different groups, for example, denouncing Jews, you name it like that. Whereas in Ukraine, you have this identification with being Ukrainian that has been solidified because of the Russian invasion. So I'd say overall, compared to World War II, there is a lot more of a unified partisan activity within those areas of, like, say, Donetsk and Luhansk, um, republics or oblasts. But I don't think that we're at the point where we're seeing the type of partisan activity that we will see later on. For example, if the counteroffensive in place currently right now does break through down to, say, Melitopol, or um, I think they'll probably go more towards Melitopol than, say, Mariupol. Just because of its proximity to the Russian Federation border, and so, but if they do break through into those areas, I think we're going to see a really increase and in spike in partisan activity amongst those civilians that have been upset and you know and are being crushed by the Russians in those areas. So again, I'm looking for that kind of turning point in the counteroffensive to where will that partisan activity will will go, and you saw that definitely happen in the Russian or the um World War II case once Stalingrad happened, again, this is a much more smaller war compared to World War II in Europe, but still it has that intensity. And I think it does have those different turning points that we need to look for.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, it seems like they, uh, uh, in Paul like they seem to be going kind of right for it. And that's where we've seen a lot of activity. So I don't know if that is something um, that it, it seemed like there was an uptick in attacks that uh, uh, preceded the the uh, uh, counteroffensive, uh, which you know has been obviously slow going. Um, but I don't know. I mean, do, do you find those two to be related at all? Uh, I, you know, I, I think when I, I'm, for example, looking at the Institute of Study of War
1: map right now, in those areas around right. Melitopol, um, Donetsk, Luhansk City, uh, Tolkhma, all these have had that kind of insurgent partisan warfare activity that's associated. You know, and um, the SBU, which is a topic I know we're going to discuss quite a bit, I think we can all be certain that they have had agents in those areas that are right now probably really planning to have far more activity as these things break through and as these lines of uh, fortifications begin to get crushed, or at least as the Ukrainians start to penetrate those. We know that the SBU has been active, for example, in Donetsk and Luhansk Republics earlier with targeting occupation administrators. We've seen a number of assassinations against, you know, different supporters of the Russian Federation. I think that that, anybody who is a Russian Federation supporter in those areas has been looking behind their back really carefully. And I think that that's going to become more and more prevalent as we go on. I think that anybody that has really been active as a collaborationist um, is not going to really probably make it much past the new year in 2024 if this counteroffensive
2: continues to progress. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, just on okay. that point, if I if I may, then I mean it is the overwhelming picture is just an abject failure on the part of Russia's mm-hmm. security and intelligence services to do what in a very kind of like cold analytical way we could describe as basically the the kind of um the basic functions of any decent intelligence service, which would be to recruit um valuable assets within Ukraine that could help with partisan warfare, sabotage, and so on. There's just been a an absolute dismal failure on the part of the Russian state to do that. Now, is that because of the really systemic corruption that we know exists within the FSB, particularly the fifth service that's responsible for the so-called Russian near abroad, um, systemic uh, corruption that is that has blighted it from its existence. Uh, and we can quickly imagine that the rubles that were supposed to go into the pockets hmm. of partisan um, uh, collaborators for Russia, ended up instead in the pockets of fsb officers that's very easy to imagine so this is a um as nate was just highlighting we can imagine that ukrainian security service has um um well-placed sources in exactly those battlegrounds and from what we're seeing um although we never know what's going on uh, you know in the kind of the, the clandestine world but it seems blindingly clear that, that there's been a, a massive failure on the part of Russian security. You know,
1: and I just want to follow up on something that Calder is saying. In contrast to FSB, you've seen that SBU work in reform to become more effective. And I'll give you a case, for example, President Zelensky removed the head of the SB, um, S, uh, SBU and put in Vasil Malyuk in February 2023. He's now at the rank of a brigadier general. Um, he's about 40 years old, and he's somebody that's been in this world for a long time. He's a really trusted partner. So President Zelensky has really been working to try to refine and increase the effectiveness of the SBU. And, for example, they've had the focus on counterterrorism, counterintelligence, critical infrastructure protection, um, also cybersecurity. But they used to go into, for example, um, economic crimes and things of that nature. Now they've moved that to other agencies. So there is this effort to try to increase the elimination of corruption. But overall, there's just a big push to increase the efficiency. And I think some of that is tied in with the counteroffensive as well. But uh, Calder's done a lot of work in looking at how the FSB and other GRU, other Russian organizations, have really been corrupted and uh, been really kind of withering from within since the post-Soviet collapse. So -hmm. Calder, I don't know if you have anything else
2: to add on that. No, that's exactly it. And I, I think we should also say That this is what we're witnessing is obviously the first draft of history. And and you hear it through, uh, at least I hear it through um, trusted sources that the Ukrainian security has indeed had, as Nate just illustrated, um, there's been several changings of the guards. Um, There have been people replaced. Um, There have been whispers of corruption and indeed uh, Russian penetration. That's a story that hasn't been told yet. But the, the overall headline that I think is important to stress is that Zelensky's government is doing seems to be doing an incredibly good job of clearing house. Um, but that actual mechanics of um, how Ukrainian security services um, discovered that they were penetrated, query with the, with the help of Western services, um, US intelligence, other NATO allies, um, or, or indeed on their own, um, and then that process of um uh getting rid of um potentially compromised people within their services, that's going to be a fascinating story to track as we go forward. Mm. I think it I think it's worth worth saying that um along with the Ukrainian just their um incredible ability to do the impossible to to, to fight against Russia has been an also equally incredible, um, let's call it, information management of, um, uh, Zelensky has done, is obviously given his background, knows how to deliver a message. And actually finding reliable intelligence about um, Russian penetration of Ukrainian security before and during the early stages is hard to find. And I think it's quite right. I think we shouldn't know about that at this point. But I'll just stress uh to your listeners that um or readers um that this is uh, necessarily the first draft, and that we will know more about this in due course
0: mhm yeah you know uh you mentioned before about uh the failure of Russian intelligence um to to operate in Ukraine in the very early on, I'm sure you guys remember there was a lot of reports of uh russian agents you know in kiev targeting yeah. buildings things like that um and that very
2: usually quickly... what you'd imagine them to be doing
0: right right yeah right. and and that very very quickly seemed to fall off now i don't know if that's because of uh ukraine has been very effective in the information space exactly. um you know every once in a while in fact i just saw a story uh that came up um about the SBU arresting some people, I think they in the South um, that were supposedly working with Russia. Um, okay. I mean, I don't know how often that's happening. It seems like it's happening less often. I think part of that also has to do with Russia, which is their, their really big mistake with this, with the invasion was that they did not plan for it to go as long as it did. And that really seemed to, they had sort of, uh people in place and practices in place for a regime change right yeah three-day war it's like the famous thing right so um you know they just i don't think they really had people in place for for that long i think ukraine was able to find a lot of these people uh arrest them and i don't know if they have assets really at this point
1: you know call can i jump in if i may and just say that after the rock war um, this is probably the most incredible, catastrophic geopolitical blunders I think that has existed in the 21st century so far. I mean, Iraq was yeah. a horrible decision, a really yeah. wrong thing decision. But I'm still shocked that Putin didn't decide to just focus on Luhansk, Donetsk, where he already had a lot of, um, you know, the Little Green Men. All that was successful in Crimea. He over, he miscalculated, as Calder has written about and suggested in many places. And it just really blows my mind that he didn't salami slice away at this rather than this. It's just the the hubris is just overwhelming, the criminal action of what Russia is doing. And you know, and I'm coming from this, I won't speak for Calder, but you know, we were both coming from this from an academic point of view. But you know, the the um the atrocities that are involved, especially early on, have just been stupendous, you know, in a in a, the most horrific way.
2: Hmm. No, it, it, it's um I well on on the specific point of the miscalculation, I, I feel pretty confident to say that this is going to be right up there with um, when the history does get written uh, of one of the worst intelligence failures in history on the part of Putin uh, and and his miscalculation. Now, query whether um, in the time honoured tradition of. Russian Soviet intelligence failures, like Stalin's mishandling of intelligence before Operation Barbarossa, was this because Putin regarded himself as the supreme analyst who knew better than his intelligence chiefs? I think that's mm. probably the reality. We had the um, that bizarre spectacle on the eve of the uh, invasion of Putin's National Security Council meeting if you remember was um, pre- evident, evidently pre-recorded because people's watches had the different times if you remember so this was all choreographed uh, and stage managed but what we had in that meeting was putin humiliating before the world's media um his director of foreign intelligence Sergey nerishkin uh, the director of the svr where he had um gone so far as to um stray off course on the from the script and Putin said words to the effect, no, 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 we're not coming to that yet. That's coming later. And they kept that in, um, the script. They could have just edited that out, but he kept it in um, as a way of humiliating Narishkin. Now, when the, again, when the history comes to get written, uh, either with records smuggled um, out of Russia or a defector, that defector, he or she may already exist and be um, spilling the beans to Western services was Nerishkin actually trying to give a more sober assessment of the prospects of a Russian victory to Putin and Putin dismissed it. And that's what we saw playing out in that uh, national security meeting. We don't know. That's not impossible. But what we do know is that in Putin's regime, much like some of the worst dictators in history, particularly, I would would point to Stalin, there was an inbuilt... um, Mm -hmm inability to be able to tell truth to power for the very very real um for the very real prospect that if you deign to um, disagree with the leader that would be a very quick way to, to end your life um so that's what i think we've seen playing out
1: you know and this is not just typical of authoritarian states too if you remember the chief of staff of the US Army John Shinseki Um, He advised prior to Iraq that it would take half a million, 500,000 troops in order to successfully do this. Um, There were things, for example, in the first Indochina war, the French um, generals were telling uh, the French leadership um, at the time that they would need half a million troops to subdue the Viet Minh in the first Indochina war. Uh, Sometimes people just don't want to listen to the professional advice of very smart, people who have studied military force and the logistics needed to conduct these types of operations. And I think, uh, you know, this is where applied history really can help inform some of these, but it's not going to be a template where we can just apply it. But we try to see those lessons and we see those similarities happening again and again. And as Calder mentioned, this will be something that's an interesting paper to examine um, later on how military leaders just are not able to change political political leaders uh,
2: points of view in certain cases mm-hmm. i think in, in in any system you can only take the horse to to the water so far. <laughs> yeah, right can't actually make the horse drink the water um but i think the, the the difference is that in an authoritarian regime it's almost guaranteed that the intelligence dissemination will be warped faulty whereas in more in the democratic model uh, Um, There have been epic blunders, as Nate just um, um, illustrated, but it's not systemic and inbuilt like it is in Putin's regime. Mm -hmm. That's a good
0: point. Do do you think, uh, I mean, Putin comes from the FSB, KGB, right? Do you think he kind of still sees himself as like an intelligence guy? Or, I mean, he's been out of that for, what, 25 years, something like that? Yeah. So, you know, I'm curious. Yeah, like, I mean, does he see himself as being like a guy who knows this stuff? And yeah. is, uh, you know, maybe thinks a little bit too highly of himself in that sense. That's,
2: definitely. I, I'll jump in there, Nate. That's okay. So my 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 view is that he absolutely embraces his KGB past and makes much of it. And in fact, I'd go further and say this is in many ways a myth that he's been peddling. So he's insinuated that he um, worked with deep cover Russian illegals for the KGB. That's nonsense. Mm-hmm. We, know that. we know that's not the case he He has a vested interest in making himself presenting himself as a former k g b master spy um you know that is and this was i'm i'm afraid kind of this narrative was only increased after twenty sixteen in the u s with the election meddling where there it seemed that Putin was this sort of master puppeteer on the world stage which which sort of fitted in with his k g b um background in fact, if you look at his career, he was a low level k g b officer in a effectively a, a backwater in east germany right um, not the at, at the at the the forefront um of um intellig- kgb intelligence in east germany um and then yes was the fsb director um but that was very much a surprise to him as everyone else <laughs> um the director of the svr in the 1990s Yevgeny primakov said that he'd never heard of um <laughs> Vladimir Putin, okay. Um Putin's then made much of his KGB past since coming into power, but again, you look at his actual track record, he's presided over a series of Russian intelligence failures. Some of the deep Russia's deep cover operatives in the in the US were uh, rounded up and um uh, deported in 2010. He's tried to assassinate his enemies. Um uh, Yes, successfully on the streets of London here, where I'm speaking from, uh, Alexander Litvinenko, but unsuccessfully with um, other operatives. So it's far from the picture that he wants to um, portray. And in my in my view, um, his decision, his gamble to invade Ukraine. Um, is an intelligence failure that actually fits in with a longer track record of him being far from the um, spy master that he wants to present himself as. Mm-hmm.
0: So I guess going into, I'm glad we're getting into sort of history here. Uh, I want to talk about Ukraine's intelligence history and sort of uh, during the Soviet Union, especially the late Soviet Union and the post-Soviet Union. So Caller, can you tell me a little bit about what they were up to around the fall of the Soviet Union before, yeah. after? I mean, Ukraine was, uh, from what I understand, the – I mean, this was the second largest republic in the Soviet Union, right? Yeah. Um, and they were pretty heavily involved in um, a lot of this. I mean, they have their own history of – Ukraine has obviously not always been uh, – happy to be a part of the Soviet Union necessarily, but yeah. you know they were very much involved with the KGB, right? So yeah. can you tell me, well, yeah, what were they up to and, and how did that sort of play out? Um, and I want to get into sort of their relationship developing with Russia in the post Soviet space. Well, let's talk about that. For-
2: well, the overwhelming priority for Ukrainian security and intelligence post-1991 was safeguarding um, the former Soviet nuclear arsenal that was on mm. its territory. And they did this primarily uh, through help with Western services. Yes, Russian intelligence also helped. But this was the moment, I mean, as with many other former Soviet republics, one of the great unwritten, it seems to me, chapters of um, post-Soviet relations with the West was how Western services helped, uh, came in and helped to um, redefine their security and intelligence services, um, deploying or getting rid of all the old baggage uh, from the Soviet past. Um, And in in particular, with lawyers coming in and writing new constitutions of what an intelligence and security service could do um, operating in a democracy. That's one of the huge successes of Western services uh, post 9-11. Um, Ukrainian security and intelligence, of course, operating to um, defend Ukrainian national security. But as I mentioned, the overwhelming focus and priority was on counter-nuclear proliferation with CIA, U.S. intelligence, um, um, massive efforts, secretive to destroy, um, pay for and destroy former Soviet nuclear arsenals on Ukrainian territory, either by destroying them um, within the United States, um, taking nukes back to the US for degrading and destruction, or um, transferring them to Russia um, for safekeeping um, and for close monitoring by US intelligence. So what was Ukrainian security and intelligence up to in the 1990s? uh, Redefining its charter, um, Proudly independent as a new uh, nation, fighting for its existence um, with an eye towards Europe and NATO, um, and collaborating very closely and effectively behind the scenes uh, with Western partners. Yes, also maintaining liaisons with Russian intelligence, but the overwhelming focus, and this is revealed in a series of documents that have just been declassified 30 years after, after events, um in 2021 um about the collaboration between the british in particular uh and ukrainian security and intelligence i'm sure similar records exist in french archives in german archives in u.s archives but those are the ones that i've studied most closely
0: Mm -hmm. can you talk about the relationship uh with russia and how that i mean I, i would imagine um in the immediate post soviet space was there infighting at all about what direction they sort of i mean there's been infighting in ukraine since then about what direction to go in yeah. politically you know yeah. uh across the country it's you know part of what what led to 2014 right uh yeah. so uh can you talk about how that played out and and what sort of i mean did they develop an adversarial relationship with russia immediately or what was that like politically inside the the
2: sp so like we should say first and foremost, Ukrainian archives from this period, are patchy, So we're not able to say, I'm not able to say um, conclusively, this is what was going on and within um, uh, Ukrainian security and intelligence agencies in the 1990s. But, but we do know um, we do have records um, from the U S and the British in liaison with Ukrainian security and intelligence about what they were doing. And the overwhelming focus priority was integration and assistance from the West and an inherent suspicion of Russia um it has to be said Russia for its perspective um, from its security and intelligence services were inherently suspicious about NATO and why did NATO continue to exist in the mid-1990s when by definition it had um, ceased to for, it, 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 its function had ceased to exist. Uh, the Cold War was apparently over. Why does NATO still exist? That's what Russian intelligence, time and time again, their chiefs were saying. And then he talk about the um, overtures being made to the Baltic Republics to Ukraine, and Russian intelligence would see that as containment um, or encirclement by Western services. So we've just got this classic um, situation where... Um, One side seeing one side as um, aggression, and the other side is seeing it as containment. And they both see the same thing in the different ways.
1: Well, I think you could also see, um, Calder, if I can, just how, for example, the Russian Federation has seen how NATO has reacted, for example, in 2008 with Georgia, and then also 2014 with Crimea. You know, there's these kind of turning points to where they've been trying to see to what, what kind of reaction will be created from the nato or from uh ua um eu forces and so on so forth
2: yeah Mm -hmm. exactly
0: yeah and i I also want to get sort of back into uh kind of present day because we didn't get to it really earlier uh ukraine's activity uh since last year um since the the full-scale invasion we can go back also to 2014 um can you put their activity in context of uh, we kind of mentioned it before, you know, is this sort of uh, Western influence strategies and, and tactics? Is this still sort of Soviet? Um, is it a hybrid? Is it sort of homegrown? Um, yeah. Yeah. Can you just talk about what they've been up to and uh, and where, where that sort of come from?
2: Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll just say that I think it's very difficult to tell in that kind of granular level of where the different layers are coming from. Um so I I I I just wouldn't be able to sort of place a priority of like how much of this is inherent Ukrainian development or foreign. We know for we know from reliable sources that western services have been very active in Ukraine before 2014 and obviously after um and and to what extent um has have Ukrainian security intelligence agencies been um Like assisting from that, we just don't know uh, as far as I'm concerned. Nate, I don't know if you want to jump in.
1: I I would think that there's been a real push, at least for military integration with the West for a long time. Uh, I'd say this goes back to the post-1991 post-Soviet split to where there has been an eye towards the West, at least for military support. I mean, of course, Ukrainian forces have had a lot of former Soviet equipment that they were using initially, and they have as quickly as possible been replacing that with far more effective Western arms, from the French, from the Germans, from the the UK, you name it. So I think there's always been this desire, really, at least for the military side, to have that type of integration, one, because the West just has a lot more to offer economically than, for example, what the former Soviet Union would have. And I think that if you look at, I'll just use the city of Kharkiv as an example, Um, Mm -hmm. what was the name, you know, that was the former Soviet capital. Of Ukraine during that time and that was obviously one of the first areas where we saw a major push to reclaim Kharkiv Oblast and so I think that is really telling with regard to how this offensive the Russians offensive has really generated and consolidated Ukrainian identity against this the former Soviet history that they had um, against Russian speakers Ukrainians have been really claiming their own language again And this is something that's been really going on, uh, and I think it's really solidified it. I can't say with any sort of certainty that intelligence services with the SBU have still been incorporating, but I'm sure they, like any intelligence organization, is going to take the best of every single type of apparatus that you can find and make it as efficient as they can, um, you know, for better and for worse, unfortunately. Mm
2: -hmm. I think one of the things that I'm tracking very closely at this point is how um, U.S what well, we saw the leak of highly classified information um when was that now guys um 6 months ago not oh. even um uh, from the mid level um, massachusetts national guardsman low
1: level massachusetts yeah, low, national guard yeah, low, low yeah. level I'll say okay like
2: a um, yeah quite how he had access to that intelligence is so that's a whole separate issue yeah but um permeating that and again looking forward is the role of US domestic politics uh, on Ukraine. And one thing I'm tracking very closely is, is um, the political narrative, particularly on the right, um, about Ukraine uh, and what support will be given uh, by the Republicans to Ukraine. That leads to the question then, what uh, what's the Ukrainian leadership and the Ukrainian security intelligence agencies? doing at this point to preempt a possible um, Republican um, nominee uh, president and aid from the U.S. drying up in the future. Um, So we can imagine that whatever is happening right now, there are some incredibly heated and important conversations with other NATO leaders apart from the U.S. saying, we need to hedge our bets. Uh, And if suddenly U.S. aid... Dries up. What are we going to do? That is, I guarantee you, the conversation that's going on right now.
0: Mm-hmm. I think. Um, oh, sorry, Nate. Did you want to say something?
1: Well, yeah. I think this is where we have to look at the historical case too. That, for example, the scholar Yuri Zukov, um, he wrote in an article in 2007 that Small Wars Insurgencies, published. It was. It was called um, "Examining the Authoritarian Model of Counterinsurgency: The Soviet Campaign Against the Ukrainian Insurgent Army." I mean, there's been. This historical fight before the Soviet Union was really dominating this particular area. Um, when we talk about partisan warfare, I just wanted to bring this in too, is that the territorial and the, the landscape is really a key factor in this. We don't have mountains like the Alps in Europe in World War II. We don't have jungles like Vietnam. I mean, this is a flat terrain, basically going from about Connecticut to Chicago. It's really hard to hide, which is something you really need in partisan warfare. And so that's where you see these urban centers Mm Melitovold, Donetsk, and others that will be that kind of centerpiece for partisan warfare. And this is where I think, for example, in the information space, you can have maybe um, people that are relying on Starlink to communicate with Western sources. They don't have to have agents there in Ukrainian cities. They're able to get this information through different means about ways to, for example, conduct urban operations, support partisan groups to undermine Russian forces that are in those areas in tandem with the overall counter offensive. I don't want to get off too much on the tangent, but I just had to interject that.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, on the, on the nature of partisan warfare and information warfare, this is a new, um, yeah. a, a, a new war where information is so much more readily available than ever before in a previous conflict. You know, at, at the, at the click of a mouse, you can know more about what's going on. It basically in real time than ever before in, in history. Um, so, and it also offers remarkable opportunities for Western services to exploit that. Uh, so you ne- we need to be careful of um, fabrications and lies and and so on. But also then Western services. I mean, we have to remember, I think six months ago or so, um, the CIA produced an incredibly slick video aimed at recruiting disaffected, despondent Russians. Maybe it wasn't even six months ago now. Um But uh, that encapsulates, to my mind, the new means of recruiting um, uh, Russians. So it's the same business they've always been in, um, human intelligence agent recruitment, but using uh, this radically new means. So giving them um, the opportunity to get in touch over the dark web with a really slick and well-made new video. Russia, of course, doing its own um, information warfare. Uh, and producing propaganda, um, portraying Zelensky as a stooge of Western intelligence services. So you've got it coming from from all angles, but it seems to me that um, out of that, um, both directions, Ukrainians are also doing a fantastic job about with their information propaganda about their war effort.
1: You could also rely yeah. on this for tactics, techniques, and procedures too, with just the technological aspect. I mean, they're able to do real-time research on how to, for example, harness UAVs, you know, the Switchblade S-300, S-600. You can exactly. use YouTube to fix things around your home while the Ukrainians are using it and other sources to include, in- increase the effectiveness of their weapons. So it's just yeah. information, but it's also for weapon systems too. It's It's incredible. So I think this is going to be another aspect that's going to be written as the future because the technological advances that they've been able to use um, with old equipment, has been really remarkable as well.
2: And and again, it's the right person at the right moment. So Zelensky, yeah. um, with his background, you know, formerly a comedian, but he he knows uh, the power of a camera. He knows mm-hmm. the power of a delivery of a good message that can win people over. So he's been um, second to none in terms of delivering messages on the part of Ukrainians.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they have. Yeah, it's. uh, It can be frustrating sometimes as a journalist, you know, trying to to cover this stuff because there's so much information, you know, and it and it really does feel weirdly. I mean, I uh, I kind of uh, dropped out of domestic U.S. politics for a while because it's just a little bit overwhelming. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, but it really is the the amount of information that comes out of Ukraine on a daily basis is it's literally overwhelming. I mean, you can't, uh, I don't even know. It's so hard to cover because by the time, if if you try to cover it in a a traditional sense, yeah. To try to verify things, you know, I mean, it takes a while to verify information sometimes, you know, even if you have sort of systems in place, um, And, you know, by the time you verify one thing, 10 other videos have come out of this or that or or 10 other claims and posts on Twitter. And it's like, who is this person that's posting this? Where did this information come from? Um, So it is,
2: uh, it's. Do you know, do you know Michael Weiss, Weiss, however you pronounce him? Um, So he, he, uh, he's, um, he appears on, he's on MSNBC quite a bit, but he runs he's a fantastic, basically he's a fantastic reporter and he seems to have sources um within ukraine that is able to verify um things incredibly quickly however he does it um to my mind as a non investigative journalist he he seems to have um interesting the, yeah. the methodology down so worth paying attention to his, his how he does it also well it's, actually, it's
0: trusted sources right i mean if you have yeah. trusted sources and exactly. the internet is not, a, you can't trust anything on the internet, basically. That's not exactly well,
1: Dennis, yeah. you shouldn't feel too bad, though, too. You know, in any event, you're going to have people that are right there on the ground. They're not exactly. going to be able to agree with other people that are right there on the ground, too, you know, depending that's on it. where you're at, what your perspective is, where you're coming from. Um, that's it. You know, so that's something you've got to keep in mind, too. This is a very human activity yeah. that we're talking about, well, even with the technology. I mean, people have different ways of seeing things, which is a bias. All these things play into it. It's, and that's where intelligence failures are such a key part of, I know, Calder's yeah. research too. It's a very human element that he's analyzing, which is really foremost in this. That's right. Exactly. Yeah,
0: sorry, my, my camera is uh, uh, it's, uh, overheating itself. <laughs> okay, maybe I ran out of battery. Uh, hey, well, hey, you know, hey, the, man, the reason why I brought up domestic yeah. U.S. politics is it reminds me of, of of uh you know post 2016 and how um yeah uh, how quickly how that became it was the volume of information that was coming out became the divining factor of of uh i don't know i guess the zeitgeist like that was there was so much information coming out and no one could verify quickly enough all you had to do was just flood the information space that became i feel like the strategy was if you flood the information space regardless of whether things are accurate yeah. or not, you can control the narrative, right? It doesn't because no one really not, not I don't it's not that I don't think people care that it's not true that or that something is or isn't true. It's yeah. that there's no time to care
2: almost that it's that's true. It. Or not. You're on the next story. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. Um no it's uh, information overload. Um but that's where it gets back maybe to Nate's point in many ways it gets back to old-fashioned reporting about actually having people on the ground who are trusted uh who can uh point through all of this information um so i know that michael weiss for example has a um uh, a group of trusted people on the ground in ukraine so that's obviously how he gets his his information that he can say no this is reliable
1: Well, you have to remember propaganda is an element of distributed denial of service in a way where the idea where you flood things is really part of it, you know, as well as manipulate the truth. Uh, This is where, for example, you know, China and the Soviet Union, the Russian Federation. I mean, they have a really long and fascinating, horrifying history in this exact practice as well. And Calder's research is shown in his book. That, you know, I know you've mentioned Dennis, but um, Calder really digs into this history, which is fascinating for us now. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, playing out in real time in front yeah. of our screens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay. So wow, we we've, we've got into all sorts
0: of stuff. Um. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I do Dennis, have
0: more. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I, How are we I, doing on I'm time?
2: Bit, yeah, I'm a bit pushed on time. Uh, maybe I got about another ten Five. minutes. Is that okay? Or if I, yeah yeah
0: sure yeah, so ten minutes is good for me. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, uh, Nate, I wanted to, I just had a couple of things that, that relate uh, kind of mm-hmm. directly to your work on uh, Bernard Fall. Um, he, in the book, he talks about this idea, the idea of revolutionary warfare and sort of it being political and sort of uh, administrative as much as it is sort of an insurgent, as there is a military insurgent aspect of it. And I, and I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on how that, uh, relates to Ukraine, especially, I mean, Russia has really since 2014, I mean, since they took over, you know, uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, I mean, you hear a lot about they've failed to provide services to people. Um, they don't govern. I mean, all they've done is build a Kerch bridge, it seems like. That's like the only thing that they've done, really. And um, I, I just I'm curious if that Uh, relates to to what he was talking about, if I'm kind of on the right track there.
1: Yeah, you know, well, Bernard Fall, just for background, is he was somebody, he was an Austrian Jew who joined the Maquis after his parents were killed by the Nazis, and he um, joined because the Nazis were basically forcing, um, deporting young people to go and work in German factories. So a lot of the people that joined partisan groups were trying to avoid compulsory labor in Germany. And so they joined the Maquis and different groups, and these coalesced later into the, being the FFI, the, Free, um, the French Forces of Interior. But Bernard Fall, he was, you know, he was in this particular group in the French Resistance, and he really identified how, for example, collaboration, denunciation, retribution—all these factors were kind of worked in a swirl, um, you know. And this is what created so much violence in World War II, because you had all these different groups fighting against each other. Um, you had. Jewish partisan groups that were fighting against others because they had been denounced by other Jewish councils. Mm-hmm. So it really created a horrible dynamic. Um, and Fall, for example, said that in one place, I'll just paraphrase that he said that, you know, it used to be the where we would target a German soldier, but then every German soldier that we would kill in the French resistance, you know, they would kill 50 French civilians. He said, eventually yeah, right. what we decided is that the best thing to do was to tap target collaborators Because, one, it would create an insulation between the resistance group and the Germans. First of all, you would have other collaborators that would then no longer be alive to give more information to the German forces. And um, they also were often unarmed. And so you really saw the Mackie and the French resistance focus on targeting collaborators. I think in the case of Ukraine... We mentioned this earlier, that the likelihood of any collaborator that's supporting the Russian Federation in Donetsk or Luhansk or other places, you know, they're not going to last very long. They'll be the very first people that the SBU, is, if they haven't already targeted them, will be the first ones that they target when this counteroffensive continues to make progress. And so, those human dynamics of going after those that are one vulnerable, but also that have denounced you or family members or other groups in your particular organization, you know, those are human dynamics that you see in Ukraine now. You saw in World War II. You definitely saw in the case of the Vietnam War, which is something Bernard Fall really focused on. Again, these are all human activities, but we see these parallels with, for example, things like collaboration, um, retribution against those that denounce the others or that have collaborated with occupying forces and that's i think something that's really going to play out a lot here in these months ahead um as this counter-offensive takes up steam
0: Mm -hmm. and uh there was something else uh i think it was uh francois sully that i read that he was talking to fall right um and fall was kind of talking about solutions right to to uh, the vietnam uh war and he believed that one of the solutions was sort of a, a, like a two-state solution right kind of north and south right um but he said that there would need to be a viable government you know um in the south to sort of uh to allow that to happen right and you know just thinking about i mean that they weren't right and that didn't happen um and i think that contributed to it and you look at a lot of uh countries in world war ii afghanistan iraq I mean these and Ukraine all have like the occupying force or the government that they're trying to put in place is yeah. the people don't want it there and it's ineffective and I think that kind of like do it seems like that really yeah. dooms a an invasion no Yeah I, mean, you- I just wonder what you think about that about you know I can't imagine Russia ever being willing to or like any reconciliation happening or Russia having an effective government there. I mean, I, you know, political
1: legitimacy is the absolute critical part in this. And this is for example, in World War II, you know, the the Nazis had no political legitimacy. That's why they would just go in and completely raise a city and kill everybody within a particular encirclement. They didn't care about that. They were just about getting rid of any particular opposition at all, any sort of government that you want to have, um, give the appearance of political legitimacy, you're going to have to be able to administer and govern that in a way that's gonna gain support of the people. In the case of Ukraine, there's no way that there's going to ever be sort of any legitimate Russian Federation supported administrative apparatus at all, at least in my view. If Luhansk and Donetsk remain like a DNR and LNR beyond at some point, and they just get that Southern districts of Zavrosiya, Oblast and others, there's going to be continue to be insurgency against any sort of Russian occupation until Ukrainians' borders are free. At least that's my view. Whether or not there's a new administration that discontinues support for Ukraine um, in 2024 and beyond, there's still going to be resources that are going to be getting to those potential insurgent forces in years to come until this is done because political legitimacy that Bernard Fall argued about was the key. And this is where, for example, in Afghanistan, in my own experience, we, we dumped trillion dollars into Afghanistan and Iraq you know but we weren't successful in the case of Afghanistan because there was never a really efficient politically legitimate government in the Jaroa government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan that we were able to support and we had the right. best military forces there for a long time right. but until you have that political legitimacy you're never going to succeed
2: mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, oh, and and yeah. I'll, I'll just say, um, because Nate's too modest to say this, but for all of your listeners or readers, um, pick up a copy of The Number One Realist, um, which is Nate's biography of Bernard Fall, because it get, gets into extraordinary and granular detail um, about Bernard Fall's experience in Vietnam and the lessons that can be learned from it. So Nate's too shy to, to say that, but I'll say it.
0: <laughs> right and likewise uh your book spies the hundred year wow. intelligence war between east and west um both very like i said having had a, a lot of time to read through them but um really really good read so far so uh Great. both really really interesting stuff and and relevant to this um all right anything you guys want to add
1: i'll just what? say thanks dennis for inviting us you yeah. know this topic I, thanks warfare. for joining me yeah this is, is there's a lot to be said so
0: yeah it's it's very, very i mean this is uh very illuminating and and super yeah. interesting and i could talk about this kind of all day. so i appreciate no, it's you guys
2: great time for me. and happy
0: to